free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to liven up your bedroom is even better. Go to adamandeve.com and use the Thousand Movie Project podcast coupon code TMPP to get 50% off of your purchase. Not only that, enter offer code TMPP at checkout and get six free spicy movies. And that's what we're all about here on Thousand Movie Project podcast, cinema. Also, DVDs are just fun. They're vintage now. It's like masturbating to a telegram. Plus, plus, free shipping on the whole thing. Go to adamandeve.com, select the lube, the harness, the dildo of your choice, and enter the offer code TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, for 50% off. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I've probably mentioned here that I had the same therapist for a decade. I started seeing him when I was 14, a freshman in high school, and I stopped seeing him when I was 24 because he and his wife had just recently become empty nesters, they were still young enough to establish themselves in a new place professionally, and so they returned to the West Coast from whence they came. And this therapist and I had a really great dynamic. And My therapist was funny, he was smart, he was super patient, and we just we sort of clicked in the way that... I don't know, a patient and a doctor sometimes do. But once that relationship was over, I was kind of like, I think I'm done with therapy. Not forever, because I do believe in it, and I am all aboard for getting back into it myself someday. I've often said, like, if I ever become rich, the first thing I'm going to buy is mental health. Therapy, yoga, weekly massages. I'm going to move into a part of town that isn't frightening. But when my therapist left town, there was also this vibe of like, I mean, in, in the immediate wake of his departure, there was some vibe of like, oh, there goes my buddy, which isn't to say that I had any delusions of us, of he and I being friends, but there was that mournful feeling of like, oh, there goes a person I've really enjoyed talking to for a really long time, a person who is absconding into the sunset with my deepest secrets. Mainly it was just like, this dude watched me grow up from the age of 14 to the age of 24, so he probably knows me in a way that no other therapist will ever be able to know me, because apart from seeing the adult that I am, he watched me actually become that adult. So there's that. Plus, whenever I think of getting with another therapist, I'm like, okay, well, I guess this new doctor and I just kind of start from scratch, which is a totally misguided conception, I know. It's not like the first session with a new therapist would begin as, as the genesis of who I am. I'm not gonna sit down and go, The year was 2004! I was 13 years old, and I had just had my first and very troublesome wet dream about the Down Syndrome girl in my graduating class. Which incidentally is a true story. That was my first wet dream. And I think I've only had like three of them in my entire life, and the last two of them were, uh, recent. But yeah, that was one of the things that I confided to my old therapist, like right when we were getting to know each other, was that I, was, I, don't know, I think I was 13 or 14, and I woke up while ejaculating to this dream that a student from my graduating class who had Down syndrome was giving me a hand job on a black leather sofa. And I was already at that time on like rocky ground when it came to sexuality and like trying to figure out what worked. And, and that dream just complicated things dramatically. And incidentally, if you feel even the slightest inclination to ride into the show and tell me that this is a pretty fucked up dream, let me remind you, it happened 15 years ago and I, I sought medical attention. Anyway, part of my apprehension about starting anything with a new therapist is this idea that I'm going to have to start my life story from scratch. Which is maybe not literally what's going to happen, but I am harrowed by the idea of all those sessions where you're, 
you're feeling each other out in the beginning, where you spend 20 to 30 minutes in traffic to go across town so that you can sit in an awkward waiting room, and then you go into your therapist's office, you sit down, you talk for 50 minutes about your problems, and I imagine for like the first 12 sessions, the therapist is going to like hear me say something, and then she's going to blink a few times and then hold up her palms like, whoa, 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 whoa. You did what to the Down Syndrome girl? But I know that good shit would come from my getting reacquainted with a therapist. I vent to this person about my concerns for a few weeks, and then maybe just here and there, she'll drop some knowledge in the form of like, hey, do you realize that you get most bent out of shape when we touch on this topic and that topic? That, in my mind, is one of like the great functions of going to therapy, even when there appears to be nothing wrong in your life. Is that you're just, you're telling the story of what's going on, and, and it's, it's an attentive, trained audience who's going to point out little consistencies, the patterns of yourself that you cannot see. That being said, it also seems like a huge hassle. Now, this is the point in the monologue where if I, if I just stop talking, it will work as its own segment. I don't have to keep talking. As a matter of fact, given what I'm about to say, it's probably best that I stop. But I'm going to change the tenor of this to reveal that I was thinking about that former therapist of mine, the one who went off to the West Coast, and recently, and I was like, I wonder what he's up to. So I googled his name. He's got a fairly common name, so I typed in some other phrases that I thought might yield a more precise search, and I found him. All I found really was this employee profile from the place where he works. It's got some general information, some paragraphs that he appears to have written personally about his education and the scope of his professional focus. And so I'm reading this, and I was like, okay, he ended up in a cool place. It looks like he's doing the same thing. And then I thought, what if I keep going? Which I didn't. I swear to God, I did not keep searching. And partly it's because... Frankly, I'm not that interested. He's like a 60-year-old dad who, who works 10-hour days and occasionally goes camping. I really don't think there's anything about his life that I'm going to find online that's terribly interesting. But there is another aspect to my, my reticence about searching him out. And it has something to do with the fact that this guy did right by me for a long time. And he probably would not be thrilled to think that one of his former patients is scouring the internet for traces of his social life. I always had this thing when we sat down for our sessions where I could not just start talking about myself unless there was a bit of a preamble. It felt like such a betrayal of social convention, of etiquette, to sit down on somebody's couch after not seeing them for a week and just launch into a tide of personal shit. And if you feel even the slightest compulsion to ride into the show, to tell me that this is exactly what I'm doing on your podcast feed, is, is popping up once a week and talking at you about my problems, allow me to remind you, this ground was covered 15 years ago and I sought mental help. But yeah, what had happened is I would go I would go into his office, I'd plop down on the couch, he would raise his eyebrows in an inviting way, and then he would flash a smile. And the smile was a way of acknowledging that we were about to go through the motions and that he wasn't bothered by it in the least. And then I, I would ask him about his day, or I would have prepared some question about his practice. Like, for instance, I would ask if he'd ever had patients get angry with him during a session. And when I asked that, and incidentally, I remember his eyes widened as if he was saying like, oh, let me count the ways. And then he told me a kind of vague story about a patient, a big guy, who leaped up from the couch and, and got in his face and started challenging him because apparently the doctor had posited a question about why this man was so protective of his masculinity or something like that. But so the doctor was always super cool about indulging me in these preliminary question things. And he was also very good at steering those questions back toward me somehow. And yet I remember how for that entire decade that I was popping in and out of his office, 
He had this really cool way of indulging me, of answering those personal questions about his profession, but he answered them in a way that never really revealed anything. Like, I knew how many kids that he had, I knew that he was married, I knew that he lived in this or that part of town, and that he was a, a big fan of film noir and of nature, and that his favorite Shakespeare play was Hamlet, but he was otherwise kind of a blank slate. And it's only in retrospect that I realize what a calculated effort that must have been on his part to indulge me in answering personal questions, but to do so in a way that both circled back to me and didn't reveal much about himself. The, I think the time he most let his guard down was when I asked him what it was like when he would go to parties or just find himself in a general situation where he's meeting new people. And I said, how do, how do people react when you introduce yourself as a therapist? And he said, well, I don't exactly do that, Alex. I don't go up to people and say, hello, I am a therapist. I said, okay, yeah, you know what I mean. When, when, you a when people ask you what you do for a living and you tell them you're a therapist, do they tend to respond in a certain way? And he said, oh my god, yes, and they do it immediately. So I prodded the issue a bit, and he started, like, getting kind of heated just thinking about it. He was like, I'll be at a party. I'll be standing with a group. Somebody will say, what do you do? And I'll tell them I'm a psychologist and that I specialize in X, Y, and Z. And Alex, I'm not kidding. I won't be halfway through saying what I specialize in before half of them have started telling me their whole fucking life story, or else they come up with some reason to bail from the conversation immediately. Like they're afraid I'm going to start analyzing them. He was a cool guy. He was a cool guy. And on top of remembering him as being a really cool guy, another reason I feel gross at the idea of, of looking into his life is because I remember little gestures of privacy around his office. I remember the sound-blocking bar that he had drilled into the bottom of his office door so that people in the lobby wouldn't overhear what he and a patient were discussing. I remember the way that he very carefully tore his home address away from the bottom right-hand corner of the magazines in his lobby's office. One day, I was waiting alone in the lobby for our session to start, and a dude walked out of his office, the patient we had just been speaking with. And this guy was probably in his 60s, maybe his early 70s, and he looked absolutely stricken, just emotionally destitute. And maybe it was something about my own state of mind at the time, but I remember looking at that guy's face and thinking it was the most profoundly sad face I'd ever seen in my life. And so I went into my therapist's office after that dude walked out, and I guess I myself looked a little haunted in the wake of the encounter, and so the doctor says, it looks like you're upset about something. And I said, yes, yes and no. I mean, I was out there in the lobby, I was wallowing in my stupid bullshit problems, and then that dude walked out of your office, and, and I looked right at his face, and I don't, I don't think he even noticed, he, he just had tunnel vision, he was completely lost in his head, and it was clear that whatever that guy is contending with is something incredibly heavy, and probably super profound, and like, now I feel guilty about being 21, and able-bodied, and you know, all ready to go for life, and yet here I am, trundling into your office, complaining about stupid shit, and my therapist just nodded a couple times, and he was like, what makes you think that man was so upset when he walked out of here? And I was like, dude, you saw his... Were you not just talking to him for an hour? And so he nodded, and he said, yeah, okay, that man is upset. Yes, he's got a lot on his mind. But I'm sure that you do too, and you're allowed to have things on your mind. And I said, but isn't it like, isn't it whiplash for you to go from talking for an hour with a guy like that? I imagine he's in his 70s. He's probably got health problems and he, he's seeing his contemporaries die and he's looking down the barrel at his own mortality and maybe reconciling himself to the fact that shit's not, shit's, shit's just been done that can't be undone. Like time's running out, whatever, whatever. And then I come in here with my fucking fast metabolism and my whole big future ahead of me. And I complain about the fact that like my roommate keeps drinking my Coke, like isn't, can't you see, like, like I can't see how you can take me seriously after that dude came in here and left. 
And he said, Alex, there have been times that you've come in here and the patient I was speaking to right before you was telling me about how they were tortured, physically tortured over a long period of time. And I said, like, like tortured with power tools? And he said, no, not power tools, but so what kind of tools? Tools, Alex, he was tortured. But look, I, look, on the other hand, there are times that you've come into my office, the, the guy before me, before you was had been tortured. And then there are times that you come into my office and the patient I had just been seeing before you was five years old. And we were sitting on the floor playing Jenga, and I'm having to take a whole different approach to the way that I find out what's on his mind. And then maybe you leave, and I get a patient who's going through divorce, or they've lost a loved one, or they're sick. Every patient presents their situation to me, and my job is to find a way into it and help them deal with their problem. It would be totally beside the point for me to say of two patients that one of them has a truer kind of pain than the other. Because the point is not what they're suffering, it's how they're suffering. That patient of mine who is physically tortured might not be in as much emotional pain as the patient who's going through the process of a divorce, or the patient who just got yelled at by his boss, or lost his cat. That my doctor had a way of leveling with me, is what I'm trying to say. Like there, were, like, there was the bigger picture approach that he took toward my larger issues, but he also had a knack for diffusing my spontaneous, of-the-moment issues. And he also had a way of coaching me in what felt like a paternal way. Just about, like, how to make the right decision in certain situations, telling me what sort of treatment I should or should not tolerate from people. And in retrospect, all of the advice he ever gave me seems pretty solid and, like, objectively dignified. So when you compound his good guy, je ne sais quoi, with these little signs around his office that showed that he was a guy who was interested in privacy, in protecting his own information, as well as the information of his clients, and suddenly it's like, you know, he was... He was very kind to me for 10 years. He catered to and placated my eccentricities, and it feels like a chance to pay it forward by saying to myself, it would be totally normal and human to wonder what he's up to and do some leisurely research, but it would be cooler if I didn't do that. He's a married guy in his 60s who's practicing the same profession he's been practicing for 30 years. I'm not going to dig up dirt on this guy. Like one time in college, I got my girlfriend a sex toy called the rabbit. It was like a little vibrator thing. And when I mentioned it to him during a session, he lit up and he was like, oh yeah, the rabbit. I know the rabbit. And when he said that, I was like, okay, well, this guy fucks. Good for him. So if I was to like dig for information about his life, what is there for me to learn? He likes film noir. He's a therapist. <laughs> he's a fan of the rabbit. Do I need to see what his family looks like? The fuck does it matter? And the way I've been thinking about it is that we are all out there on the internet. Most of us can pretty much be found by anybody who really wants to find us. We can have very intimate things dug up about us. It's just the world that we live in. And so it's, it's kind of our responsibility to govern the parameters of our own exposure to that information. I'll give you an example. One time I was in New York and I was just visiting by myself and I met somebody on the street and this is the only time it's ever happened to me in my life. I met somebody on the street. She was she was a graduate student nearing the end of her studies. I think she was at UCLA and she gave me her card and a couple days later she said she was about to leave town, go back home and uh, she wanted to get a drink. So I invite her over to the bar in the lobby of my hotel and, uh, and it's, it's something of a date. Clearly there's just like a, an objective... And also, like, we both don't live in this city. We're about to go back to our respective hometowns. It's clear that this is like a sex thing. So so we're drinking, we're talking, and at some point she gets up to use the bathroom. And while she's away in the bathroom, I take the opportunity to Google her name. So I type in her name uh, and where she went to school, and her name comes up. And I, I see, yes, she's in a grad program at, at the university where she says. And I also see 
that she's got a she's got a publication here. And the thing that she's published is an analytical piece about a children's movie that has some feminist subtext. And in her essay, she is exploring those feminist subtexts. So I open the essay, I start to read it while she's in the bathroom, and you can imagine my surprise when I see that it begins by saying, quote, I'm both proud and disappointed to say that my husband enjoyed this movie more than I did. And I didn't even read beyond that. I just, I, I closed the page, I put my phone in my pocket and just waited for her to get back. So she comes back, she sits with me, the evening progresses, we're drinking and we're talking, and at one point, as she's telling me about a dance class that she takes, I ask her if her husband ever joins her. And I'm drunk, and so I've got this smirk, like, oh, I'm so clever, I know that you're married. And her face kind of sank a bit when I mentioned this, but then she forced a smile, and she was like, how did you know I was married? And I said, I, I googled you when you went to the bathroom. And then she balked at me. And she very dr slowly and dramatically set her glass of wine down on the table. And she said, you Googled me? And I said, yeah, you mentioned that you had these publications and I was curious to see them. So I, I Googled you. And she just, she, she, she leaned back and she started looking around and she was scoffing and she was shaking her head. She ended up telling me that she and her husband were separated, but that they sleep in the same bed. And yeah, they occasionally have sex, but they also are clearly both going on dates and they routinely spend the night out at someone else's place, and but they've got a kind of don't ask, don't tell policy in, in the house while their divorce is underway and they while they get their finances back in order. Did I believe her? Not really. Did I have sex with her? Kinda. Because we were in New York, as I said, and, we, and I was staying at this hotel. And so after so many drinks, we just go up to my room. And I was already kind of like, you know what would be cool in this situation? An adult to tell me what to do. And her name, this one person's name is Jessica. And Jessica, we get into my room and Jessica starts undressing and we start making out. And we had, gra while downstairs at the bar, we had grazed over the topic of sexuality because she's getting her master's, I think, in psychology, but it had some kind of certificate or some kind of lean toward feminist theory and sexuality, some kind of stacked degree. Anyway, she's very open about sexuality, as am I. And so we had spoken downstairs about kinks and, and stuff. And so now... Upstairs in my hotel room, because we had been so candid previously, as she's getting undressed, she just tells me flat out, <laughs> she says, I like it rough, by the way, so don't, so don't hold back. And I was like, rough, rough how? Like choking? Spanking? And she said, yeah, within reason, obviously, but yeah, spitting too, whatever. And I was like, okay. But then, on top of that, she goes, also, I'm not going to have an orgasm, so don't freak out about that. And I was like, well, Jesus, I haven't even started. Why don't you hold your judgments? And she said, no, it's it's uh, medication. Like, it's just not happening for me right now. So just don't don't worry about it. And so we get started. I try to make it happen, but there's just... Like, this is... It's just too much. Here's Like, here's this married stranger walking into my hotel room in the middle of the day like, my name is Jessica. Now choke me until I don't come. It was too much to process, and I couldn't get it up, and she ended up leaving. She had to be somewhere, so I walked her downstairs, and she got a cab, and that was it. But then she sent me an email afterward, uh, when she was back in her home state at this point, and she was like, Hey, I had a great time. No worries that things didn't work out. If you're ever in my part of town, don't hesitate to call. And I was like, oh, I'm probably never going to talk to this person again. But then I did end up talking to her again because I got a rash on my crotch the next day and the rash got worse and worse and worse. And so I sent her an email like, hey, I think you might have given me an STI, which was not probably the way I should have approached it. But I was young and it, I was terrified. But now it's not just me that's panicking. 
It hits Jessica really hard, too, because now she's starting to think that she had an STI where previously she'd had no symptoms. And so she starts panicking at the thought of, you know, having something. And also, I'm guessing she's probably afraid that she's now given it to her husband, from whom she's probably not actually separated, or at least not yet, until he finds that now he has an STI. But anyway, so I spend the rest of my time in New York just panicking. And um, this rash is getting worse. Finally, my, my time is up. I go to JFK, fly back to Miami. So I go to Planned Parenthood sit there a nurse looks at my inner thigh at my gooch ish area and she as she's inspecting me she's like nodding in a somber way and she's murmuring to herself and she's like mm, yeah oh yeah 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 i see it and i'm sweating and i'm like oh fuck what is it what is it and this fucking 70 year old lady comes her head just rises up from my crotch and she gives me a sympathetic look and she goes diaper rash I was like, diaper rash? I was I wasn't I haven't been wearing diapers. I haven't worn a diaper in years. But she was just giving me like the layman's way of putting it. What had happened is I was in New York, it was the middle of August, and I had been walking like fifteen miles a day wearing khakis and what were apparently the wrong kind of underwear. But but I get like a whole panel of STI tests anyways, and after you do all the tests, and I haven't gone and gotten tested in like a year, maybe a little longer, but they would give you a card a plastic card with a like a four or five digit number and what you were supposed to do is after like 14 days you call the Planned Parenthood hotline you put in that number and an automated voice tells you your test results and I remember I was at a TGI Fridays at the Falls which has since been torn down because of its myriad um, health inspection violations and I was sitting at the bar sweating and trembling as I got the feedback. You are negative. On this, you are negative. On that, you are negative. But anyway, so I'm breathing a sigh of relief. Everything's clear. And then I was like, I should probably reach out to Jessica and let her know. So I reach out to her. I send her an email. I say, hey, so turns out all clear. I don't have an STI. She responds almost immediately. And she's like, oh, thank God. What, so what was the issue? What was it? And I put my pride in my pocket. And I said, I had diaper rash. And she writes back and she says, diaper rash? Are you kidding me? And I said, yep. It was pretty serious, but it was diaper rash. And she goes, how serious could it have been? It was diaper rash. And I said, Jessica, it's not about what I'm suffering. It's how I'm suffering. And I never heard from her again. And there goes another episode. But okay, so for today's epilogue, I wanted to talk about two things that ended up making me feel like shit, although it's not morbid or anything. Um, first off is that there are some there are some episodes of this podcast, some monologues, that come out better than others, as, as you can probably tell. But there's an episode from a few weeks back called Strongman's Conundrum, where I try to look seriously at this inexplicable and totally uncharacteristic fascination that I have with documentaries about endurance athletes like strength trainers and the ultimate CrossFit games and whatever. And in that episode, in that opening monologue, I talk a lot about Ronnie Coleman, the eight-time Mr. Olympia bodybuilder who's had 13 surgeries on his spine. As I now understand it, his entire spine is fused together so that he can barely walk. And yeah, that I think that episode is one of the few that came out looking like the best thing it could have been. And as a result of that episode's having turned out pretty well, I thought I should mention that Ronnie Coleman was interviewed this week on the Joe Rogan podcast. And it's, it's a really interesting interview. He's way more charismatic and charming than I would have guessed. Although I take umbrage with a, with a lot of his opinions on things, as I'm sure you will find things to disagree with him about. 
What made me feel like shit, though, is that, honestly, when I was thinking about how I should mention here in the epilogue that there's this really good interview with Ronnie Coleman on the Joe Rogan podcast, I was thinking at the same time, like, oh, but I should make clear to people that I don't generally listen to Joe Rogan, that I'm subscribed to Joe Rogan, but I don't really listen unless he's got a, he's got a guest that I find more interesting than Joe Rogan. But why? Like, why should I bother to say that? I guess deep down it's because I'm afraid that people are going to think I'm like a meathead if I listen to the Joe Rogan experience, but come on. It's not hard to find a picture of me on the internet. <laughs> um, I really don't think anyone's going to get the impression that I, like, drink coffee with a machine gun on the label, or that I use three-in-one body wash just because I listen to Joe Rogan. Although, at the same time, what does it matter if somebody does think that? I make no, like, I make no bones about broadcasting the fact that I, I listen to a shitload of Kevin Smith content. Like, why am I more comfortable acknowledging that I listen to a ton of, not, that I not only listen to Kevin Smith's shit, but I emulate it. Why am I comfortable with that, but I don't want people to think that I listen to Joe Rogan? Because, I, I mean, I occasionally do, and often I laugh. I, I make note of his insights. I laugh at his jokes. I guess also part of it is that I'm afraid that people are going to think I share the politics of whatever podcast I'm listening to, which is not the case, certainly, with Joe Rogan. But that was the first thing, where I felt like shit because I was like, okay, why am I why am I denouncing this dude's work? But the other thing that made me feel bad is something that I'd, I felt bad because there was something... I did something that made me feel good. And the thing that felt good is that I criticized a child for about 500 words. Or not a child, he's 17, but he's a student at the college who is doing dual enrollment, which ostensibly means that he's such a good student in his high school that he's able to take some college courses at the same time so that he can... Once he graduates from high school, he can sort of zip through college in two years, ideally. And again, I'm just a tutor. I'm not this kid's teacher. He isn't answering to me, but he submitted a video recording of his speech to me, and I had worked with him a couple days prior on his outline. And his outline was one of these heroic feats of not doing the work. Like, you can tell that he spent more time and imagination trying to make it sound like he had done research and like he knew what he was talking about than he would have had to spend if he had just done the research. So as we were working on his outline a few days ago, I pointed out to him as gently as I could, like, you, you don't really have much research here, like any research at all. And he was like, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm going to go do some research. And I realized now, and I kind of had the vibe at the time, that he just wanted the conversation to be over. Um, so he was going to tell me whatever he needed to tell me in order to make a graceful exit. So a couple days later, he submits the actual speech, the video of him delivering what he had written in the outline. And it is worse than what he showed me in the outline. And he begins the assignment by talking about which of the speech's requirements he has chosen to ignore. So he'll say in the beginning, I'm not dressed up or whatever, and I don't have as many sources as I should, but like, yeah, no, for sure, I'll get it next time, ah ha ha. And then he goes on to rattle off all kinds of nonsensical, platitudinous, pseudo-profundities, like the job that you're chasing in life is a reflection of who you are, and gender is more equal now. Like once upon a time, back in the day, a man had to earn money and the woman had to stay home, but now a woman can work. It's fine. And people aren't even one gender at all. Like, they're transgender. And so, once upon a time, that was a problem, but now people are like, whatever, man, you're trans, that's cool. And I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, kid, this is such a fucking bad idea. And as I start typing up this evaluation, I find myself getting carried away with it. And I start linking him to articles about like trans suicide rates and, and trans murders and, and trying to really drive home the point that, that his comment about how it's totally easy to be trans is really not, is really not viable, nor even his remarks about gender neutrality in the workplace. But eventually I caught myself and I was like, okay, this 
17-year-old did some middling speech that he paid no attention to, and I'm about to flood his inbox with murder statistics. Is this really how I should be handling the situation? And part of it was my being annoyed by the fact that he had promised me in our consultation over his outline and that he was going to do the assignment as he was supposed to. But I also think that I was being a sanctimonious dickface here because I'd been spending a lot of time on Twitter lately. And it's making me uncomfortable because I'll look at something like J.K. Rowling's incendiary transphobic tweet. Um, and I see how the whole world seems to be coming down on her with criticism about how she's stupid, she's racist, transphobic, ignorant, prejudicial, all these things. Here, here is J.K. Rowling's tweet that, that sort of ignited the storm. She said, quote, If sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. If sex isn't real, then the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth. And I'll be honest, first time I read that tweet, I didn't know what the problem was. But I also didn't know what she was talking about. I know what all of those words mean, but I did not process the idea. And it opened my eyes to the frequency with which I look at I look at people's tweets, I look at their Facebook statuses or their remarks on Instagram, and I'm just like, ah, yes, English. And I take for granted that just because I'm processing the words, I'm processing the ideas behind them. Or, more perniciously, I assume that I'm also intuiting all the implications of those ideas. But then it turns out that the tweet I just quoted, that's the one that got retweeted the most, that's the one that caught the most flack, because that tweet is argumentative and it appears to be opening up the channels of conversation. But that isn't where this all started. It started because there was an article on a website called DevEx, D-E-V-E-X, talking about the need to supply hygiene products to, quote, people who menstruate. And then it mentions in a passing way that there are women, girls, and non-binary people who menstruate, and hundreds of millions of them don't have access to sanitary products. Rowling first on Twitter, she responded to that article with some sarcastic tweet like, oh, didn't we have a word for people who menstruate? Something like woobin or weemon? It was when people called her out for that, because you could you could conceivably write it off as, as having been a very poorly constructed joke. It was after people started giving her shit for that that she doubled down and posted that the wordier, more argumentative tweet that everybody responded to. Which, from the bubble that I live in, takes some concentration to understand. It's not like one of Trump's tweets that wears its offensiveness on its lapel. I think there's also the fact that Trump uses exclamation points, which helps me to di digest the offensiveness faster. It lets me know that he's shouting, which is already a problem. I was in college when I first heard somebody use the word cisgendered, which is a testament to the strength and elasticity of my bubble's walls. Uh, and when I asked that guy what it meant, what cisgendered meant, he was appalled. And he really came down on me for not knowing what it meant. And I got defensive. And I was like, well, you've known me for a while. And you know that I'm not like a hateful person. If you see that I'm coming from a well-intentioned place, why don't you just explain to me what is narrow-minded about about my not knowing it? Like, why are you taking this tone with me like I just paid for my drink with swastikas? Because he really was taking it kind of far. And he was saying shit like, oh, I thought you were better than this. I thought you were better than to not know this. But he said this to me. He said, it is another form of oppression to make an oppressed person explain to you how they are oppressed, which of course only infuriated me at the time, but now it makes a lot more sense. And the reason it infuriated me at the time is because it's stressful to stomach the idea that you don't really know what you're talking about, that there are whole realms of human experience, structures in the society that you inhabit that you do not see because you choose not to see them. 
And also the fact that even just the poverty of your language, no matter how well-intentioned you are, it can be a contributing factor to the subjugation of a certain group of people. So I saw people coming down on JK Rowling. I looked at the tweet. I didn't totally understand it. And so I was like, fuck, let me go read. So I did some reading and now I understand what's fucked up about it. And I've been kind of raking it all in like the feedback for days because as, ven as venomous and unpleasant as, it, as a lot of this Rowling conversation can be on Twitter, people are saying interesting shit. Again, I feel it's like my, re it's my responsibility to pay attention to it as upsetting as a lot of it is because as my friend told me so many years ago, you're kind of stepping on trans and black people's lives if you're prompting them to explain why their life is hard before you then acknowledge and defend the fact that their life is hard. So it's been a constructive learning experience to pay attention to how Twitter is collapsing on JK Rowling's head, but I've also definitely absorbed some of that angry tone and like, it's, it's really not my place to be coming down on this 17-year-old for some of the narrow-minded stuff that he's mentioning in his speech, a speech that he didn't even give have a thought, half of a thought to. Like I, like, I should probably ease up, but I'm also wondering, like, maybe it is my place to do this? Maybe if I really come down on him for his narrow-mindedness here, it'll, like, smack some kind of self-consciousness into him, and he'll be less likely to talk confidently about shit that he doesn't understand. Eventually, I did not send him those links, and instead just told him that I strongly recommend he take out all mention of gender dynamics if he doesn't intend to back his remarks up with research. It did feel really good to kind of come down on him, though, to, to be the per like to be the morally superior one in that dynamic, which is a very there is a as Steve Donahue said in an earlier episode, there is a narcotic effect to some of that sanctimony. Also, I totally would have abstained from telling you that story in the past because it could jeopardize my job to talk about anything that a student needed help with. But I've also come to the conclusion that I shouldn't be in this job anymore. It's done right by me. I adore my colleagues, and I've never. I've never dreaded going into this job in the deep, dreadful way that, like, all of my lawyer friends dread going to their jobs, but it's just not cutting it. And it's for, that's for a bunch of reasons, none of which have anything to do with the job itself. Like, a lot of it is that I have a definite issue with entitlement. So, for instance, I will commit some bureaucratic oversight that causes a headache for somebody else up the ladder from me. And then they get pissed at my boss who gets pissed at me. And even if everyone is in agreement that the thing that I overlooked was an, an innocuous bureaucratic thing, it's still a task that needs to be done. And I still have to do it, and I'm accountable for doing it. And I am complicating other people's lives by not doing it. But that makes me so fucking mad. And it just seems so unjust. Like, we all realize this is a stupid protocol, so why do we do it? And you would think from the way that, like, this internal monologue, this internal angry monologue of mine sort of thunders about it, you would think everyone else in the world is not subject to bureaucratic bullshit, whether it's taxes or insurance or paying parking tickets, whatever the fuck. Nobody's time is so precious that it isn't still going to get hoovered up by a bunch of fine print bureaucratic nonsense. But there appears to be some pouty little prince in my head who is very convinced that he is above all of this shit and should just be totally excluded from it. And so whenever one of my superiors gets mad at me for an oversight, I feel a literal instinct to sit down at my computer and write a resignation letter on the spot. Which is so fucking self-defeating and nonsensical, but, you know, I've had, I have been at this job a long time, I think coming up on six years, and my hours have been reduced and reduced, and it's not looking like they're going to go back up. And while it has its own kind of rewards and perks, it is a, you know, it's a one-hour commute to a part-time job, and, you know, one hour back. And sort of a, a bitter thing to realize over the past few months is that I was making more money as a busboy than I did 
at in this tutoring gig that requires a college degree. So that's one thing is that I just need to, I might just need to break away and find something that's going to give me more hours, more money. And another part of it is that I, so, you know, I was talking about, I real okay. I really like this woman that I've been talking about, Mary. I don't think she's really on board with pursuing anything romantic, although, sweet fuck, I have more chisme on what's going on with Mary that I will tell you about in a minute. But look, Mary is 32 years old, and I'm 29, and she talks in a casual way about the fact that, that like, in the next five years or so, with or without a man, she wants to have a kid. And I, I'm realizing that as I start shimmying into my 30s, and as I continue to date people who are roughly my own age, it, I'm going to get to a point where all of my peers are kind of looking for the same thing. And right now, I'm not an eligible choice <laughs> for somebody who wants that. Like, I am leading a life that is very much just for Alex. I make just enough money for Alex to eat and for Alex to do his thing. If I want to bring somebody else into the picture, it's going to mean getting a job that gives me more financial breathing room, but getting more financially, getting more financial breathing room is going to mean having less creative breathing room because I'm going to have less time. I'm going to have less energy. That's that's a whole other thing. So uh, maybe this podcast, maybe this episode gets me fired. I will let you know. Um, other than that, the Mary Chisme. So we went and we got drinks a couple weeks ago at Batch Gastro Pub on Brickle, which I didn't mention on the podcast, but you can read about it. You can read about that whole outing. I wrote about it on thousandmovieproject.com. It's in a recent blog post titled, it's called Might Have Been a Date. And then a few days later, after we got that drink together, um, met for the first time, Mary started working full-time again. Like, her work life is pretty much completely back to normal. At least in terms of its intensity, if not necessarily the same things are going on at her job as pre-COVID. And so once she was getting caught up in it and sort of grooving back into her routine, I was like, you know what, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to hear from her again. Because you have to remember that we met once, like, after quarantine had been in place for quite a while. And we've only ever known each other during this period where we had oceans of free time. And it was fine to, you know, talk to talk on Zoom until one or two in the morning because neither of us had any place to be. But so we go out for that drink, which might have been a date. I really don't know. And if you could have a look at that blog post and let me know your thoughts, uh, I'd appreciate it. But so we go for that drink. And then in the days afterward, I'm just going about my thing um, day to day. And I start reading this terrific book called Lost in Thought. The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life by Zena Hitz, H-I-T-Z. And in that book, which is about how this woman uh, climbed the ranks of academia and then realized that it was just a petty, ugly, competitive, insular place, and so she bailed. And, and it chronicles, like, how you can lead a rewarding intellectual life outside of sort of the domains of the intelligentsia. So I'm reading that book, and... And in that book, she quotes another writer, a, a journalist named Barbara Ehrenreich, who says that at the end of two shifts in a restaurant, quote, I am not tired at all, I assure myself, though it may be that there is simply no more I left to do the tiredness monitoring. I'm going to say it one more time because I had to read it twice, but it, it, it was heavy. Okay, she says, quote, I am not tired at all, I assure myself though it may be that there is simply no more I left to do the tiredness monitoring. And that sentence rang my bell super hard because I've written a lot about working in the hospitality industry, and it's actually a huge part of the book that I'm working on, but it also reminded me of Mary in a really vivid way and for reasons I couldn't totally throw out there and explain, although it does obviously have something to do with the fact that both both she and I have worked in hospitality and we've both talked about how we really admire work ethic. Work ethic is like 
a crowning virtue that a human being can have is that you're assertive and you work really hard and you go above and beyond the call of duty and you take pride in what you do. Kind of like the, the subject matter of an episode from a few weeks ago, uh, the podcast episode from a few weeks ago where I talked about the career bartender. But so while we both celebrate that attribute in people, we're also both very mindful of and both prone to the pitfalls of working very hard, the things that fall by the wayside when you're obsessively tending your job. And so, to my surprise, I go to Batch on Wednesday evening after work. I get there at about 7, I'm by myself uh, with a book, and I read until happy hour is over at 8. And I come back to my apartment, and as I'm making dinner, I get a text from Mary. It's my first time hearing from her since we got a drink. And she says, hey, how's it going? And we go back and forth, a little chit-chat. And finally, I'm like, oh, hey, I read something that reminded me of you. Let me go get it. So I go, to, I get my Kindle, I have to do a bunch of scrolling, it takes a while, but eventually I find that passage, I take a picture of it, and I underline the pertinent quote, and then I send the picture to her. And there's a bit of a pause after she gets it, and she's like, why did this remind you of me? And it felt like there was a tone there, because like it was a curt text, and I was like, oh, fuck. And so my brain starts cartwheeling, like trying to figure out how this might have been offensive, but ultimately I was like, Fuck it. Double down. Just answer the question. And so I told her what I just told you a minute ago about how, you know, she and I share this reverence for work ethic, but we're also mindful of how you can kind of fuck yourself over by working too hard and forgetting about yourself because of the work. Anyway, turns out this quote rings her bell just as hard as it rang mine. And she's also going through a moment of epiphany in her life where she's like, I'm realizing that I do this to myself a lot. I put my interests to the side and I focus way too much on my work or my relationship or whatever is right in front of me. And so we commiserated about that for a while and it was a great conversation. It was, there was something different and more intimate about that conversation than I think probably almost any of our other ones. I'm not sure what will come of it, but it's, it's cool beans either way. And I'm looking at the time and realizing that this episode is going to be almost all epilogue. Jesus, sis, I've been talking for 30 minutes. Oh, also, I'm still I'm still going along with the Hannibal show that they just put on Netflix. Uh, last, last night I watched episode four, and I was really loving it for the first two episodes, but now it's settling into a kind of killer of the week vibe that I'm not really digging. I'm also bothered by the actor who plays Will Graham in a way that I wasn't with the first two episodes. Because in the beginning of the series, we get this fucking brilliant premise that Will Graham, the guy who in the novels puts Hannibal Lecter away, and who is himself a kind of genius at catching serial killers because he shares some of their psychology, I thought it was a fucking brilliant idea to have him suddenly be one of Hannibal Lecter's therapy patients. That is, that is such fertile soil for good storytelling. But then in the show, Hannibal Lecter starts getting seriously involved in their, inve in their criminal investigations, like he's a sleuth following them around. And now I'm like, wait, the premise of this show appears to have shifted from the killer catcher is now being psychoanalyzed by a master killer to the killer catcher and the serial killer team up to catch other serial killers, which feels like the fucking A-team, and I'm not about it. Like, at the end of episode four, there's this scene where the SWAT team storms a house just in time to intercept a band of child serial killers as they're about to murder a family, which sounds, now that I say that, it sounds like a way cooler premise than it is on the show. But as a, as a SWAT guy shoots one of the kids who's wielding a gun, we get this awkward close-up in slow motion that is supposed to illustrate that, that the kid is being shot only once and only in the shoulder, and that there is no blood when he gets shot, which is kind of lame. And actually, I think kind of unethical because if you're going to have 
if you're going to have a show with some hokey PG-13 violence, fine. Have your hokey PG-13 violence. But whenever a woman is killed on this show, even if we're being told that she's like 17 or 18 years old, we see her entire naked body skewered on deer antlers or hanging from a wall or covered in mold and mushrooms because she's decomposing in, the, in a field. So why then, when you're going to shoot a young male character, do you pull your punches and make it like just a flesh wound? Also, why are you being so disingenuous as to act like the entire SWAT team would not have lit that kid up? If one of them was going to have the balls to pull the trigger, the rest of them would have followed. Maybe I'm jumping to conclusions, um, but I'm kind of shook by, like, the precipitous drop in quality between episodes 1 and 4. Like, it went from feeling like a really cool extension of the book series to to now it, now it just feels like regular shitty TV. But I don't know. I'm going to keep watching. I'll keep you posted. Anyways, that's enough of this. Fuck. I'm talking too long. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.